Good evening, everybody. How is that vocally? Can you hear okay? Brilliant. I'm Ian Rickson. I'm a director. And um, we're here to celebrate this wonderful book coming out with Michelle Terry and Sue Laurie, who, well, there are these three amazing, egoless, generous, mercurial geniuses, one at the RSC, one at the Royal Court, and one here. There's Cicely Berry, who's sort of changed the face of speaking and voice at the RSC, who's a friend of Sue's. And Jocelyn Herbert, who d died about 10 years ago, but an amazing shapeshifter in terms of the history of design. And here, like a sort of sixpence in a big Christmas pudding, uh, is Sue Laurie, who is just like those two other women. She has such a subtle, deep influence in the way so many practitioners work, uh, but she'd never show off about it. She just works in her room in her own beautiful way. But actually, I think this is really important that this book is coming out. It's a great moment, and it's great as a manifestation of the narrative you're on, of Alexander and the importance of it, and you playing a part in that story. So maybe we should start with, and I'm sure many of you know this, but we can just do it concisely, what is Alexander Technique? Who was Alexander? All right. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, he was an actor. It was somewhere around 1880 in Australia. Mm -hmm. Went to Melbourne to follow his dream of being an actor. And whenever he got on stage, he, his voice seemed to fail, fail him. And um, he was very concerned about this. He was only very young, about 23 or something. And um, he, there was nothing the matter. He hadn't got any nodules or anything like that. And so he thought, I must be doing something. I must be making some sort of tension, um, which is getting in the way of my breathing and so on. The minute we react to a stimulus, whether it comes from inside or outside, um, he noticed that he tightened his neck very, very slightly and threw his head back, which shortened everything. Got in the way of his breathing, breathing it with it, using his diaphragm. And um, he was fascinated because he thought, I've discovered the, the cause. Now I'll just correct it. This was fatal because if you try and do things correctly, which we mostly do, um, it just makes us even more tense. So he thought, well, I'm determined to get to the bottom of this. And he thought, well, every time I think about doing something, um, even, even if I, um, well, unconsciously um, react, um, a message comes from the brain and lands on the body and activates it. And I have absolutely nothing to do with that at all. I'm not in charge of what I do because my mind is always ahead. I'm never present enough to notice what I'm doing. I'm thinking about where I want to, what I want to have for supper or what I want to do with the rest of my life or I'm thinking about the past. And um, I'm never present. So um, what he came up with has often been described as a stroke of brilliance. 
he decided to change those messages. But in order to do that, the important thing about the technique is he would give himself a stimulus to do something, to, to actually to speak to begin with. He would then inhibit doing anything at all, make a space that he didn't usually have, and he would think no, or wait, stop. And in that moment, he became so much more aware of what he was doing, and he changed the messages when he went on to react. He changed the messages to the exact opposite of how he would normally react. So he, he trained himself to think of his neck being free, as that was the first thing that always happened, as he reacted. And his head to go forward and up, his back to lengthen and so on. I'm not going <laughs> to go through the whole thing. But the most important thing is the thinking no and thinking the neck free and head forward and up. Because um, that is a trigger for the rest of the body to go out of sync. And um, it worked. Yeah. It works. It works if you work it, I think they say. And it works um, if you buy the book. <laughs> There'll be a signing afterwards, by the way, in the bookshop. <laughs> when you talk about presence, something I love about Michelle is she seems to have this kind of luminous, very real presence on stage. Of course, the best actors do. And I imagine, Michelle, you could do Pilates or yoga or Feldenkrais or none of these things, but... What attracts you to Alexander? Um, we were just talking, like anything experiential, it's really hard to articulate why it works because it's the doing of it that actually has the effect. So it's, I might not be able to articulate exactly why, I just know that whenever I'm here, I'm so grateful that you are here so that I can do it because I think there's something that you're talking about habitual thought patterns or habitual physical responses and you can uh, actors do quite a lot of psychological work but what you're very often not aware of are your habitual physical responses so you have your own habitual physical responses and then the minute you meet a character in comes them with their imagination and their psychology and so suddenly what can often happen the more you interrogate the character in a rehearsal process you suddenly form habitual psychological patterns that are theirs as well. So suddenly you could be playing, I mean the obvious examples are, are when I think about cleanse, you're playing, so I was playing someone in incredible amounts of shock and we spend a lot of time or in grief or pain and we spend a lot of time in rehearsals getting into character but not much getting out of character. So what Alexander offers is a place of balance and neutrality. So once you can physically go or imaginatively go to those places with the character you're playing and then have somewhere to come back to. And if you don't have that somewhere to come back to, you end up in conflict with your own psychology and the character's psychology. So, for example, if you're playing Titania and you're carrying yourself like the Queen of the Fairies, but your habitual psychology is going, you can't do this, people are judging you, people think you're rubbish. So you, your body is going, but I'm the Queen of the Fairies. No, you're not, you're terrible. And suddenly your body is like <laughs> contorting into these incredible uh, things that you're not aware of until you have individual and I think that's what's so important about what the work they do here is it's, it's about you and about your individual responsibility for your own process, which is why I've never been in your rehearsal room. I know that you do it 
with actors. I'd be so interested how you apply that as a group, because I've only ever experienced individually. But the work that I have with Sue is so indispensable because it makes you take responsibility for your craft, for one, but also your habitual responses in life as well. But yeah, how does it work in a rehearsal room? I think as a director, you feel that you should be impressive, fast thinking, entertaining and clever. And that can get you reverberating on quite a fast high frequency, which can mean you're not present and you lose a lot of energy um, pursuing these quests to entertain or impress. I think if you think about something very physical and simple to do with oxygen going to the brain, to do with we're all here now. I mean, we're a circle of sorts. You've all chosen to come here at half past six on a Wednesday evening. And here we are, and actually taking that breath and maybe saying no to a thought, oh, I better be interesting, I better be entertaining. Actually, something happens to do with our collective presence. And I always feel I want all my actors to go to Sue because they come back very porous and open and maybe they've let go of certain veers or tendencies that can get in the way. But I was going to ask you how you found it and what the kind of... Because I bet there are lots of influential people and thinkers in your life. Um, well, and it was the psychophysical side of it right. that has always fascinated me. Yeah. Because that's what you're changing. You're changing what goes on in your head. Right. I mean, um, and you're becoming aware of what goes on in your head. So emotionally, you can, you can make... It's incredibly valuable if you've got depression or... Um, to, to give yourself those sort of pure moments of... Um, I've made a CD that pupils can work with. Um, give those moments of really being with yourself um, and saying no, thinking no, it's thinking no, uh, to doing anything at all. And you can watch the thoughts landing on your body and stressing it. But you have a choice there. You can get, go through the directions or the orders as we, we call them um, and calm everything down and then think about those thoughts again and don't react in that way, which is harmful to you, you know? I'm feeling, sitting with Sue, that she is somewhat, I don't know, shamanic or something. I'm feeling lulled into this state of <laughs> openness and calm. And, you know, it's quite a nervy thing coming on stage and blah, blah, blah. But actually, it's as much the energy Sue emits, and certainly through the practice, uh, as what you're saying. And um, yet... Did you but have something else you wanted no, to say? No, I was just going to say um, that working, working with this man no, and this not. woman you know, is absolutely wonderful because they're highly intelligent and they, they get it, you know? And Ian, when he was um, directing and I was um, working with him, Red Lion and... Um, Talk House. Talk House. Yeah. Um, I tried to get across, and he understood how important it is for the director to be 
working on himself because how you are affects the actors. Yeah. You know, if you're in a tiz and a state, yeah. you know, they're going to be in a tiz and a state, you know. Yeah, there's a and real it's transaction it's a between us, isn't there, energetically? It's absolutely uh, vital, that. Yeah. And, um, you know, for I shouldn't mention names, actually. No, I won't. But I'm I was going to ask you... <laughs> I could, I could I mention one actor, <laughs> one director, who's... who's um, and I'm not going to mention names. Oh. But it was, hyster well. it was hysterical, because I went into his rehearsal, and he was always rushing around, sort of scratching and rushing around, you know. <laughs> and I said to him one day, very cheekily, he was sitting in the, in, the, in the canteen, this is at the RSC, and I said to him, uh, um, you know, really, if you'd had Alexander lessons, none of the actors would need them. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I yes. got so cross, yes. you know. <laughs> did you <laughs> get to him? Did you ever No, him? no, 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 no. How did you, <laughs> if you think about the kind of um, medieval, I don't know, Game of Thrones-ness of the kingdoms in theatre, the Royal Shakespeare Company, the National, the Royal Court, scaling the walls of those citadels as a woman, doing a more feminine, you could say, practice. I mean, physio, which is brilliant, is much more masculine and much more in these buildings. To get something like Alexander in and to get the managements of those kingdoms mm -hmm. to allow you in, was that a struggle? It jolly well was, yes. So how yeah. did you manage to get your crampons um, up the wall and climb in? Well, no, no, what happened, I was teaching lovely Sue Fleetwood. Do any of you remember her? Wonderful, wonderful actress who died, sadly. Uh, she was my very, very first pupil um, when I was a, a trainee teacher. And she always made an entrance, bless her. And um, anyway, she went to play Rosalind at the RSC. And Joe O'Connor, who is also sadly dead, um, he, he um, was playing Caesar. And they said, why don't you come up and give us a lesson? So I went up and um, uh, he spoke to the theatre manager and she put up a sign saying, does anybody want Alexander? And of course it was covered in, you know, because in those days they taught it a lot at drama school. Not so much now, unfortunately. Um, but uh, anyway... Um, it started from there in 83. And um, I became passionate about, um, you know, bringing it into the theatre because I could see how useful it was. Yeah. Dear Sis Berry used to come and have lessons. You know, yeah. she was so supportive. And um, uh, so it started there. And then lovely Lindsay Duncan, who I had taught a lot there, she was meant to come to that tonight. I don't know if she's managed it. She has. Ooh. I have such a lot to thank her for. Um, and she, she said to me one day, she said, Sue, they need an Alexander teacher at the National. So I said, oh, really, but I'm at the RFC. She said, nonsense. She said, um, you've got to go and speak to Peter Gill at the studio. And so I said, oh, I don't know, I can't, you know, I, you know my self-worth was sort of down there. You know. Anyway, she sent me a card, I'll never forget it. And she said, Sue, ring this number now. <laughs> oh. And that started, it was when Peter Hall left, um, and that started me at the National as well. 
quite how I did it. I was working at the RSC in the Barbican and studio, and then here. So anyway, oh. but that's how it started, and it it was a a fight to keep it going every time an artistic yes. director changed or something. Yes. And um, and what is the fight like? What are you? What do you feel like? Well, money for? usually. Right. You know. Yeah. It's always money, isn't it? Is it? Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, isn't it? <laughs> um, but it's but such it's a economizing thing, isn't it? Because injuries yeah. drop, acting improves, people buy more tickets. I bet you well, could do a spreadsheet of how financially useful Alexander is. But because it's not accountable in a way that, you know, teachers now have to be, therapists have to be, everyone has to be bureaucratically, etc., etc. something like Alexander, which is so beautifully mercurial. You were saying that it's under threat in drama schools and... But I have, to, I, have to, I have to speak about the puppeteers now. You've put me onto that. Yeah. Um, teaching the war horse. Oh, right. I taught war horse all the way through. From the very first Joey, I was shown the very first Joey in the studio by Tom Morris. And he, he said, Sue, come and look at this. And it was an amazing sight, you know, to suddenly come in and see this socking great puppeteer, pup, a puppet horse. And he said, there were three guys... In, or two inside and one on the head. He said, I think these guys might need your help. <laughs> and it was absolutely lovely because I really loved teaching them. I taught the man who, um, Adrian Kohler, who designed them. And um, I cannot tell you how useful Alexander was, but fighting to get more of it and to get it to everyone was a real battle. And there was a time when all the guys that I was teaching didn't have a single self-induced injury because they knew they were learning to know what they were doing, not only with their physical movements, but they had to make these horse noises, um, which are incredibly difficult. And um, it was so exciting working with them, actually. And how often would you see them? Uh, once a week. Um, and I, I was teaching at the New London um, for some of the time, but then they had to come to the National, which was more of a fag, you know, really. So if you didn't have Alexander and all the fantastic actors who don't have it and you were playing in Cleansed and you have to think and feel your way into shock and trauma and grief, Without Alexander, what are the hazards? What's happening to you in that psycho-emotional, psycho-physical way? It's, it's everything you were saying. That it all starts with the thought, and I'm not. I mean, there was you know, horrific things happen in a play like Cleanse. You know, from being raped to being electrocuted. And I'm not saying for a moment that what you go through is the real-life experience, but there is just the act of imagination, there is a residual thing that happens that part of your body goes through that trauma. And part of your responsibility as an actor is not just to think it and speak it. The minute you think and speak, your body goes into that. Your, your body responds to the thought that you have, doesn't it? And you want to honour that. And certainly in a playwright like Sarah Kane, you are being, as an audience, as, a, as an artist, as an actor, everybody's being tested to go there. So you want to honour that but then you need to know that you have somewhere to come back to. And I think you talk about it in the book that 
you mentioned about Alan Rickman playing Jaquees and this sort of seemingly comedy as you like it. But if you're really interrogating these parts, Jaquees is a melancholic. And so you, you go, your brain goes somewhere. Something about you is inhabiting and immersing yourself in these emotional roles. And the rigour it takes to then drop it at stage door so that it's not part of your life because you want to honour it and to as much as you possibly can, but having a safe place to come back to. Um, and it's not just a psychological safe space because you can psychologically go, I've dropped that now, but your body is still somehow carrying the residual effect of that emotion. Mm. Um, so for me, doing yoga and stuff doesn't really do that. Having a, like you were saying, having a place of peace and presence to come back to, yes, I think I mean, is it's vital. It's, it's, you know, yoga's wonderful for some people, Pilates, I've done them both, um, but you can use Alexander with them. Yes. And the thing is that you can uh, be Pilatesing away or <laughs> yogaing away, but if you're tightening your neck, <laughs> forget it. You know, you're, you're probably over-tightening it and it, it's affecting yeah. the the advantages you're getting from the from well, the exercise. Exactly, and yeah. like you were saying about the external stimulus of something like Warhorse, where it's very obvious the effects of carrying the weight of these creatures, or if you're working on a rake stage, they're sort of obvious external effects, mm. but there are also internal effects that happen by mm. playing different roles. That and the awful thing, not awful, but, but um, the really fascinating thing uh, with Warhorse was that the, there were three people working together. And um, if one of them wasn't doing his Alexander and the others were, you know, things, think, things could, you know, get in a bit of a muddle. Well, it's like you were saying yeah. about the transaction that happens between director and actor. Mm. You then have to, on stage, the transaction that happens between actor and, and, and also yeah. the audience. You know, you want that... So you want the space between, you want the dialogue between you and the, the, the play to be as clean as possible. Yeah. Mm. And I think Sue sort of cleans the gutters of those connections and she's very adroit at doing that. And, um, but you just uh, threw away a little line there. You said your self-worth was on the floor. And I thought, well, do you need self-worth to write a book to actually dare to put it all down and to be so reflective and thoughtful. It's a really exciting thing that... Well, I think it was just I've developed a passion for working with actors. Yeah. You know, working in the theatre. And by the way, this National Theatre is the most wonderful place to work in. You know, if things go wrong, which they can do, like legs dropping off my table and, you know, and... Uh, um, I have mentioned this story before, but I think I'm going to mention it again. I don't care. It was in the in the paper. Um, I've got her permission. It's Fra Francis de la Tour, who's a great mate. And uh, she was having a, a 5.30 session, and the leg dropped off the table. Luckily, we'd finished the, the lesson. And I said to her, Frankie, oh, look at it. Now what am I going to do? She said, darling, I'll fetch maintenance. So I said, oh, all right, you know. So she disappeared and came back with this really gorgeous-looking man. <laughs> and um, he looked at it and he said, yes, I can see what the problem is. So I said, well, have you got a screwdriver? So he said, uh, no, I'm an actor. 
So I said, and he went off, he says, I'm on in a minute. And so I said to Frankie, what are you doing? He's nothing to do with maintenance. She said, no, darling, but he's very attractive. <laughs> <laughs> That's typical, Frankie. When an actor I had to tell that. She's so lovely. When an actor comes in, are you reading them, or a director, or a playwright, are you reading them in a kind of X-ray, intuitive, sort of non-cerebral way? No. How are you reading them? Well, always, always, I sit them down and, well, I'll ask them what play they're in and ask them what problems they've got. Yeah. And they say, how long have you got? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. No, but seriously, you know, it may be back pain, it may be all sorts of things. I mean, I have trained as a counsellor as well, so that, you know, it's and within those walls, it's, you know, but just between us. And is the body and a metaphor? Is oh, yes, absolutely. Right. Yeah. Also, it's really important to find out if they've had um, any accidents, even as children. Yeah. Because it can reflect in you know, whether they've got one shoulder higher than the other or, you know, they're holding their head on one side or... Um, it, it's very interesting it, if they haven't addressed it, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, it's the same as somebody has a hip replacement, you know, they've got to learn to walk yeah. again. But um, they can. And they can, yeah. they can, but they may use the old habits, yes. you know, um, yeah. to go on walking in the same way, you know. We have to clear the stage because um, the actors are coming on to warm up. Um, thank you so much for coming in and yes, being with you. us. And thank you so much, Michelle and Sue.